1: This is Jenny, the host of Red Room. Thank you for tuning in. I realise this may be the first time many of you have heard my voice in quite a long time, probably almost half a year. And possibly out there, there are some people who have never heard my voice before in a podcast. But either way, whichever category you fit into, I'd like to ask you to listen to Red Room with an open and fresh mind. I'm quite nervous uh, to release this episode and to release my little baby Red Room into the public. As of up to now, every single episode of Red Room has existed on Patreon and has lived behind a paywall in a little vacuum of people who all want to hear it and who want to consume this content. Well, obviously, like this has been like an amazing experience for me and the the feedback and the response to the podcast has been so amazing. I did always plan on bringing Red Room public in some form. And actually, right now, I am currently working on doing so. Red Room next year will be released seasonally. However, the content that I'm going to be releasing next year isn't exactly going to be very like the content that I host on Patreon. I want the content that is hosted on Patreon to remain exclusive and to remain feeling like a secret little world where people can kind of tune in and forget themselves for an hour or so every single week. So what is Red Room? What could you expect from Red Room? Red Room is a podcast that is dedicated to the weird and the wonderful anything from crime mystery phenomena to conspiracy the paranormal we fall down internet rabbit holes we deep dive to reddit through different subcultures online we also have monthly episodes of the docket which is a more pop culture and current affairs if you will podcast hosted by myself and my lovely co-host adam o'reilly who many of you i'm sure know from mind poppers As I mentioned, I will be bringing Red Room out seasonally in 2022. However, it's kind of going to be a little bit more of an ongoing long project. And I really only want to release that project and that season of Red Room when it's ready. But until then, I wanted to unlock this episode from my archives. I've done 21 episodes of Red Room now. I really feel like the podcast has come into its own. And I wanted to release this as a thanks to everyone who has shown me support over the last year, specifically over the last six months, whether it be through Red Room, even just following the Instagram or even if you just watch my YouTube I also wanted to release this for anyone who has come really close to signing up for the podcast but need that extra little bit of convincing. I totally get you. You want to know what you're signing up for. And I really think that this episode is just a little slice of what's to offer on Red Room. So on this episode that's titled The Time Traveller, The Ranch and The Skinwalker, we're going to get into some classic Red Room content. I actually feel it's a really great representative of what to expect from the podcast in general for many reasons. So in the beginning, we review a Reddit thread where an alleged time traveler hosts a Q&A or an Ask Me Anything. Super interesting. He discusses everything from the future of crypto, veganism and of course for humanity. We also chat about the documentary Hunt for the Skinwalker by paranormal documentary maker Jeremy Corbell and some of the history of skinwalkers throughout various cultures and mythologies. We also kind of inadvertently touch on subjects like the Mandela effect, living in a simulation, near-death experiences and each of those topics I've actually done dedicated episodes to. So if any of those topics, when you're hearing them throughout the episode, if they're pinging in your ears, we have episodes to those and you can find out more about that on our Instagram, which is at redroom.pod. Other episode examples that we've done and that people have really enjoyed has been my two-part special deep dive on the subculture of incels. This was so mind-opening and mind-blowing to me and I was so honoured to be able to do a follow-up part two episode with the host of Incel, an amazing podcast by an investigative journalist called Namikates, We did a whole month of kind of spooky, creepy content in October. And there's also interviews with everyone from astrologers to Reiki healers and even some of my close friends. Goes without saying, there's lots more that dives deep into the weird and wonderful and if you would like to sign up to Red Room you can go over to patreon.com forward slash redroom pod check it out see how you like it there's no minimum sign up it's six euro and if you sign up now you'll get access to all of the archive weekly podcasts coming forward and of course our monthly live streams that I host with my fiance Evan Doherty (laughs) and cameraman extraordinaire so thank you so much I hope you enjoy this episode please share it online please share it on Instagram if you are listening that would be really exciting for me this is my little baby I'm excited for you all to listen to it and until next time welcome back to Red Room so this week we're going to be talking about time travel. We're going to be talking about shape-shifting. I'm going to be weaving in a little bit of mythology in there. That's been a huge request on you guys. And don't worry, I'm going to be getting into a lot of mythology. Um, but in h- today we're going to be just be touching on some, both Greek and Native American. So yeah, let's get into it. So shout out to my brother Louis. Who made the music, first of all, for this podcast, which is iconic. Um, But he sent me on this Reddit thread right around the time that I launched the podcast. And he was like, I really think you'd be into this. You know, he knows how my brain works. And he and I definitely share... A lot of the same interest when it comes to this stuff I often mention how like my dad Rolls his eyes when You know anyone brings up Anything maybe paranormal Or Non-scientifically based as he would say And I get it but you know The whole point of Red Room is flirting With this kind of stuff Whether you completely buy into it is up to you However I just have An intrigue and an interest In the weird and wonderful as you know so, this Reddit thread was put up on casual IMA. So, it's where people kind of put up ask me anything and they'll, you know, for example, someone here, it's a good, it's a good Reddit thread actually. Someone here, like, I'm 27 and 600 pounds, ask me anything. I, la- I like trains, ask me anything. I'm a French woman, ask me anything. A lot of the time, the ask me anything um, subreddit can be quite intense. And can involve quite a lot of like debate and heavy discourse. So this one is, it's said to be more casual. Now this one, I would not consider casual. Uh, this guy casually posts in, I'm a time traveler from the year 2051, ask me anything. And this was from three years ago. So 2018. Uh, they said that they still have a few more years in your time timeline. I've done this a few times, but I've never really got any good questions this could be my third or fourth time. Maybe it's the charm. Ask away. Remember, I cannot ask questions which may change events in your time or timeline. For example, lotto numbers, Super Bowl outcomes, etc, etc. And I read some some of the stuff that he definitely refuses to answer. It's like people being like, what should we invest in? Which I'm like, come on, guys, like, let's get a bit more metaphysical here. Like, you know, we always have to, you know, you have to, presume that they're fake, but flirt with the reality anyway. And if anything, it can spark a bit of your imagination and intrigue. So I went through this ty- this uh, subreddit and thought I would pick out some questions that were asked and how this person, uh, their name is John, I'm sure it's a pseudonym, what, uh, how they answered. So number one, what's the best global event that's happened in your lifetime? and greatest catastrophe. They respond. Well, I was born in 2123, so not much happened in the last 31 years. But the greatest global event that I've witnessed in my own time was the discovery of an ancient city on a planet called Oridian F and the Andromedia galaxy. We founded an outpost in Andromedia in March of 2143 and have found no signs of intelligent life beyond the city. As you can imagine this was a fairly monumental discovery and it was the only known sign of intelligent life anywhere. Even in my time we found life nowhere in our galaxy. Admittedly we only mapped around 60% but still. Someone else asked what is the average human life expectancy in 20- 2154? They answer Medicine and science have progressed exponentially compared to your time. People are eating healthier, manufacturers are heavily regulated, so things like phosphates, antibodies and steroids are no longer put into food. Salt is also heavily controlled as it is bad for your organs and after the cataclysms it became fairly rare. Without the use of life extending drugs or gene manipulation, the average human in my life can expect to live around 150 years. Using gene manif- manipulation and Aviga, which is a drug that helps halt cellular decay, you can expect more than double that. There is also the option of uploading yourself into a biomechanical analog, effectively gaining near eternal life, and I'll get onto that in a second, but they also go on. I've read some other questions, and some people asked about like, do they still eat animal meat or animal flesh, as the vegans would say? Um, and he responds and says, basically, like the that science has come so far that scientists now had like years ago in his lifetime discovered a way to basically clone animal meat and animal proteins, and that's what they eat. But he said they really don't ever eat actual you know they don't they don't farm animals anymore for their flesh because of how far science has come along and um, but he said that he also wouldn't really consider it vegan he goes we might consider them vegan but he was like not really that doesn't really exist anymore because of just how much it has changed now i'm really interested into this option of uploading yourself into a biomechanical analog now <laughs> One of my favourite memes online, and look, judge me if you want, okay, This like, what, what do they call it? Like a dirty little secret, okay. Have you ever watched the Alex Jones episode <laughs> on Joe Rogan, like the first one that he did? It's like... Honestly, one of the most entertaining things I've ever watched. I've probably watched it three or four times. The thing is about four and a half hours long. Alex Jones goes on Joe Rogan's podcast and they both get like so high. They're both smoking, they're smoking weed. This is back in the glory days of Joe Rogan, not like his modern Texan days, which I'm just not into, to be honest, I have to admit. But he, the two of them go on. <laughs> he's on his podcast. They're getting so high. They're getting really drunk. Alex Jones is look. He's like Roaring red He looks like Mr Toad And he's wearing this t-shirt And he's holding in the smoke And he can barely smoke it Actually it had a really drastic effect on his life Because I'm pretty sure he got divorced from his wife afterwards And she used all of that footage against him To like make sure he didn't have like I think it was maybe custody of their children or something I felt really bad for him anyway I I have a soft spot for Alex Jones okay I do he's not someone that you should hold up as a cornerstone of the perfect person or the truth seeker but is he incredibly entertaining yes anyway they're getting really high and like Joe Rogan keeps trying to ask Alex Jones about this theory that he has of like the rich and the elite and he's trying to explain this like thing of like he's like uploading consciousness and you're uploading it's up on the stratosphere and like it's You can't follow it. But then when I read this, I was like, there you go. Uploading yourself into the biomechanical analogue, effectively gaining near eternal life. And that's what Alex Jones, who is obviously a conspiracy theorist, don't get me wrong. He claims that this is already happening, that the elite, so to say, are working on this technology where you can upload your consciousness Now, if you remember, we talked about in the near-death experience episode, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it, another one I'm very proud of. And on that one, we talked about consciousness being possibly what we used to refer to as the soul, okay? And a lot of, even scientists will acknowledge when they talk about, instead of using the term soul, they will use the term consciousness, because effectively it's what um, separates us from uh, other mammals or animals. Now, that could be argued as well. However... Alex Jones claims that the elites, because his theory is, again, his theory, not mine, very entertaining theory to flirt with though. His theory is that the elites are really only wanting eternal life. That's really all they want. For, For what reason? I don't know. But this could be a way of eternal life because what are we if we are not consciousness? And his theory is that these elites want to upload their consciousness to the cloud or as this person says, the biomechanical. Analog so that it could then be downloaded in the future. And if the future is what this time traveler says, which we'll get into now in a second, it definitely seems like a very interesting time to live. Someone else asks, are cryptocurrencies still around? If so, which one is the biggest? He said, yeah, they're still kicking around a bit. Bitcoin crashed. The biggest one at the moment is called. Ethereum. And at first I was like texting Evan because we both have Ethereum. And I was like, fuck yeah, bitch, we got that right one. And then someone else asked <laughs> saying, When is Ethereum introduced in the cryptocurrency market? Do you mean Ethereum? Um, and he said, I do not mean Ethereum. Ethereum will be introduced in a few years. Now, I'm not that much of a crypto nerd that I I do I know if there's something called Ethereum. It's A E, I'm not e-t-h-e-r So I don't know, guys, if you're into crypto. Keep an eye out for Ethereum. Who knows? Someone else asked, are we living in a simulation? Okay, again, we're going back to near-death experience. Dare I say, the wheel. If you know, you know kind of shit. So they say, the time traveler says, it is entirely possible we are living in a simulation, but scientists, even in my time, still have no concrete, verifiable evidence. This other person then goes on to ask, what is causing the Mandela effect? The um, Mandela Effect is basically a conscious, I'm going to make up my own definition here, okay, and then I'll Google it. What I understand the Mandela Effect to be is like a group memory of something in pop culture that is actually completely different to how it played out in reality. So the official definition is the mandela effect refers to a situation in which a large mass of people believes that an event occurred when it did not so for example one mandela effect is loads of people remembering certain aspects of 9-11 that never happened nelson mandela's death a lot of people um, distinctly remember him dying in prison in the 80s obviously he was in prison for a long time there's a lot of ones around logos like the looney tunes for example, people think it was spelled T-O-O-N-S, like cartoons, but it was actually spelled Looney Tunes, like a tune, T-U-N-E, fucking weird. And then another one would be, uh, people think that it's called Sex in the City, the show, but it's Sex and the City. Anyway, we can do another whole episode on that if you want to. But this person says, the time traveler says, the Mandela effect is caused by the aforementioned fractures in time overlapping. So he says that every decision you make in your life fractures time. Each branch is a possibility. Sometimes these branches create another timeline. So everything, everywhere, every when is possible. Again, I'm thinking the wheel, okay? I mean, if this person is for real, the wheel is seeming incredibly concrete to me. So basically says the Mandela effect is caused by aforementioned fractures and time overlapping. It shouldn't happen, but sometimes it does. Another person asks, why wasn't Mars colonised? The time traveller answers, Mars was found to contain an abundance of microbial life and an extensive cave system that runs under the entire planet. As such, Mars was deemed a scientific safe zone, much like Antarctica. There are various research outposts, but no permanent colony." Someone else asks, which iPhones do you have? Uh, the time traveller answers, things like that don't exist in my time. Instead, we have what is called Dianet directly so this is like an acronym d-i-a-n-e-t directly interactive access network think of it like the internet telephone and television slash entertainment all in one controlled through a tiny chip the size of a needle point implanted in your brain connected to optic auditory and olfactory nerves that's your uh, sense of smell yes i did have to google it so that you can see smell and hear everything right inside your head sounds weird you could know anything in an instant taste and smell a recipe before you cook it listen to music without disturbing a soul or have a conversation with a friend in your head the way I'm describing it doesn't do it justice it's both amazing and scary at the same time that made me think of um that Black Mirror episode obviously it's very Black Mirror and it it, like I mean obviously there is also elements of this that are kind of like Well, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you were younger and you thought like in the year 2020, we'll all be on flying cars, you know, it's kind of that thing of like, we have these iPhones, so we're going to presume that they're going to be put into our brains and we're going to be able to see things. It'll be like minority report, but like, you know, it could be true. You never know. There there are some technologies out there that are going in this direction. If you think of AI and you think of um, the virtual reality headsets, which I have pretty crazy. Um, Another person asks about the cure for cancer. So they answered the cure for cancer was discovered in your time, but it was buried because of pharmaceutical companies because pharmaceutical companies were allowed to run rampant and basically make their own rules. Your government eventually will be run by people that actually care about you and pharmaceutical companies will be taxed into virtual non-existence. A healthcare plan will be put in place that takes care of the patient instead of the disease and the cure for cancer will become widespread. Cancer is virtually eradicated by 2100. In another question, someone asked about mental health and the answer was pretty similar. But And the time traveller said that in his lifetime, mental health, uh, mental illnesses is that a, the right way to word it? I don't know. I apologise if I offend anyone. But mental illnesses like schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, psychosis and those few others are pretty much eradicated as well. So very interesting. What do you think about the time traveller? I love to flirt with these things. There's one on TikTok as well. Um, way more vague and while I love to watch their posts I also love to imagine it being like some seven-year-old trolling us all I have to say <laughs> next topic we are going to be going a bit well that was I mean that was kind of spooky but this is going to be a little bit more paranormal I watched a really great documentary the other day on Amazon Prime again I'm coming through with some stranger kind of suggestions for you all to watch on tv it was called hunt for the skinwalker and this is as i said an amazon prime original documentary it's really long it's like two hours long but it's really fucking great i really enjoyed it it is based upon a ranch in utah that is colloquially known as skinwalker ranch so this ranch is also known as the sherman ranch and it's a property located on approximately 512 acres southeast of Ballard, Utah. And it is reputed to be the site of so- of paranormal, UFO. I mean, anything you can think of that's fucking weird has happened here. It is absolutely fascinating. So Skinwalker Ranch um, is a long-standing ranch in Utah. And Utah is also a... Uh, Not only a hotbed for this kind of paranormal stuff But it has a lot of Native Americans living there It's steeped in a lot of history Of course Utah also hosts the Church of the Latter-day Saints Or Mormons All really interesting shit I remember once Evan and I had a conversation And he was like Where in America would you love to visit? And I said Utah And he like pissed himself laughing but it's also incredibly beautiful there's amazing like valleys and canyons there just it seems like a really interesting place to go albeit kind of like obscure so skinwalker ranch is a ranch a cattle ranch primarily that has been used for years and years and years however in the year 1996 a billionaire called robert bigelow who is this kind of he's a super interesting dude he made his fortune in property as far as i'm aware a lot of a pre-2008 crash i think but you know this is in the 90s and he set up uh he set up this like scientific endeavor called nids which is the national national institute for discovery science he's really into like fringe scientific research but pumps like a lot of fucking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into this stuff so he buys the ranch because he has heard of all of the reports around here like this has been written down since the 70s now he hires a man an Irish man which I found so interesting called Colum Callagher who I looked up and he's not even really a public figure like his his LinkedIn comes up when you google him which I found so interesting it's like he went to Trinity <laughs> and he's in this documentary so you can see like my my ears you know your ears prick up when you hear an Irish accent I was like this is so incredibly random So Bigelow buys Skinwalker Ranch and he then brings his NIDS people in, uh, his scientists, his ufologists, I believe it is unofficially known as, and anyone and everyone he has. And again, remember this guy, he's not, although he is into fringe stuff, he can afford the best of the best. As I said, this guy, Colin Kelleher, is like a biomedical technology scientist or something. He's worked countless places afterwards and he was one of the head researchers so he brings in all his researchers and starts a 20-year project on Skinwalker Ranch and what they found is absolutely incredible so you know you can watch this show for yourself because I think that again it's two hours long there's so much in there but I'm going to focus on one or two elements I think were really interesting so Colin Callagher since has said that the one of the weirdest things was that they found, especially from a scientific perspective, was there was no single phenomena, okay? There was no, like, when they were there, they weren't just looking at, like, UFOs or paranormal or, you know, apparent, there's also people there who think there's, like, wormholes into other dimensions there. They said they were constantly looking at multiple and individual incidents that never repeated themselves exactly. Over the 20 years now if you know anything about science obviously you know that that is a fucking problem because they need a control and they need to see variables and they a lot of what they talk about in this documentary is how impossible it was made because there's a huge amount of like cattle mutilations, say for example have happened on this ranch and there was none of them ever happened the exact same. It was it blew their mind and you know I never was really into when I thought of paranormal stuff cattle mutilations seemed so boring to me now I'm kind of interested in them with what they found there. Um, a quote from Colin Callaher that I found really interesting was he said training was meaningless and nothing was repeated. So this is a man who worked here for. I think it was minimum around between five and 10 years. This is a long time he has worked there. And he said there was just no way they could train for it because nothing was ever repeated. As I mentioned, this area of Utah has been a long reported to be like an epicenter of the paranormal. Uh, in the documentary, they say that basically, like, you talk to Utah, you talk to anyone in this area or in south of Utah, and it'll be like, instead of six degrees of separation you'll have like one degree of separation from someone who's been abducted or someone who has seen something really crazy or seen ufos or you know has seen something weird you know go bump in the night um apparently it's just like an absolute hotbed for it another thing that the researchers at nid said that what was going on in this ranch was more than extraterrestrial and more than just the ranch so although the ranch has been kind of a hotbed for it it has spread throughout all of south of Utah. And if you think of it like a big umbrella, but this is kind of the epicenter of it. And it's also kind of a controlled environment that people have obviously put in years of research. And the research is still going on there. Um, so some things that they noted was digging up the earth was known to disturb whatever entity they call it was there so that was a a really notable way that they could kind of spur on something to happen they say also that lighting fires would instigate really weird and paranormal activity um and again go watch the documentary because i found it just so fascinating However, something that I want to talk about today and that really piqued my interest, which I never really had much of an interest in, if I'm honest, before I really started going down this little rabbit hole, was an incident where one of the owners of this ranch was a family. They bought this before Bigelow, okay? And they wanted to move here to Utah and breed, I think it was dairy farmers. They wanted to breed, have a dairy farm and a cattle farm. And apparently they had like some award-winning cows there. And they were really excited about this. There was three homesteads on the property. So you can imagine how big it is, 500 acres, like really massive. Um, And they were going to, you know, set up their life in Utah make loads of money selling their dairy and selling their cattle across America. So something to note about Skinwalker Ranch is it is, and I quote, in the path of the Skinwalker. And that is what it's known for by the Ute Indian tribe, U-T-E. This is one of the tribes that live very nearby Skinwalker Ranch. And there is a huge kind of rift in the earth. It's almost like a dirt kind of mountain mountain. Um, and that runs through and alongside Skinwalker Ranch. And they, they and this is kind of where it gets its name from as well. Um, they say it's in the path of the Skinwalker. So this again is it's a huge tribe and um, they actually have their own government, they have their own police force and they were moved due to the civil war. However they still have a huge community in Utah. So this family bought the ranch in the 90s and Apparently, they got spooked really, really quickly. And this is when Bigelow came in to buy the ranch for himself. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and
0: fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
1: However, there was one story that Colm Callagher retold on the documentary that I found so interesting and just spooky. And there was something so sincere about hearing an Irishman tell it, I have to say. Because, you know, when you're so used to hearing the American accents on TV and it kind of all becomes like Hollywoodified to you. There was something about hearing a Dublin accent tell this story that made it seem very real to me. I, I can't lie. So this family bought, as I said, bought it uh, in the 90s to raise cattle. On one of their first days there, very like in the first five days, I think it was, the son and the father were out uh, just outside one of the homesteads. I believe it was the second homestead. And across this huge field, there was this massive field, they could see canine figure walking toward them now they said this was it was quite a big canine figure um however they didn't really have much suspicion around it because it was kind of minding its own business it didn't seem to be predatory it was walking toward them very slowly getting kind of distracted along the way and the man and the the farmer and his son the farmer's name was terry they were standing right beside a corral they had, which was full of calves. They had their new bunch of cows and cra- calves. Excuse, I don't know the, <laughs> the term for like, what is it, a fleet of cows? I don't know. Um, They had their calves in a corral, okay, keeping them safe, obviously. And the wolf was kind of like trotting across them, they said. It was, you know, kind of, you know when you see a, a dog kind of playfully walking toward you, you know, your their head isn't down, their tail isn't down, they're not looking predatory and scary, they're more looking happy and, You know, I guess when you're a farmer, you're used to all sorts fucking coming on your farm. They weren't, they weren't worried about it. And we know that farmers, you know, it doesn't take a lot for them to become worried about something. Let's just say that, (laughs) especially when they have their award winning calves beside them. So this was also a very misty day, they said. They said that this canine figure was coming toward them. And at first they thought it was possibly a stray pet from a nearby farm because This dog was so friendly. Now, they said it was very, very big. It was bigger than any dog they had seen before. However, the dog came up to them. It bowed its head. Terry, the um, cattle farmer, actually pet the dog on its head to begin with. And they didn't really seem, um, you know, they didn't seem miffed by it. They kind of just thought it would potter off back to its own gaff. However, one of their calves had made the dire mistake Poor little thing Of having its snout pop through the corral And this is when the wolf, we'll call it Turned around and grabbed the muzzle of the cow with its jaw um, Obviously these being, you know Their feckin' bread and butter for want of a better word The farmer farmer's instincts kicked in and was like, fuck So he sent, they him and his son picked up these huge big like batons i believe and started smacking the wolf with the sticks in order to try and get it to get off the cow the calves little nozzle per thing the wolf did not budge like did not give a fuck i believe one of them was metal there didn't seem to be any whimpering it just stayed latched on to this cow so then terry screams to his son to go in and get their uh a magnum gun right and he is like go in get the gun the sun comes out, gets the gun and shoots the wolf three or four times from increasingly close range and said that the wolf didn't even bat. Like they didn't even see any entry wounds. They didn't see any blood, nothing. There was no whimpering. It, the, the, this gun is really powerful and obviously by all means should at least have injured this wolf. So then Terry's panicking and he goes in then and is like, right, fuck this. He goes in and gets a new gun, which is a big shotgun, which apparently he would use to hunt elk. Now elk are fucking huge. Okay. Just Google them. These are big animals. This shotgun, as I said, was used to hunt elk, which you know, if you're hunting, you're kind of you're you're sneaking up on something with quite a long distance, so it has to have the power to be able to shoot from really far away and kill a huge animal that could probably weigh up close to a ton. So Terry shoots the wolf with this gun, and I believe it was on the sixth shot. so this this wolf has been shot four times by a three fifty seven magnum and now it's being shot by a powerful, hunting gun hunting uh, rifle and the wolf doesn't flinch until it's shot for the sixth time terry said on the sixth time he saw a lump of skin shoot off from the wolf and this is when the wolf let go of the calf and ran away in the distance but it was not limping it was not faltering it wasn't crying and it also didn't seem to be you know aggressive toward terry and his son So Terry and his son, as I said, they are hunters. They're spooked, magooked, okay? They're like, what the fuck is this? And also, like, we want, you know, these are farmers. They have to protect their cattle and protect, which is, you know, they were trying to raise cattle on this farm. And this is one of their first days in there. So they're like, we need to fucking kill this thing because we don't want to come back. It now knows where the cattle are. And, you know, it's going to come back for more, basically. So they start tracking, you know, using hunting. They're, like, looking at the paw prints and... It's pretty flat land where they are as well, um, where the the field was ahead of the corral. So they're tracking and tracking and they're tracking for quite a long time through the mist, as I said. And they said they came to a sudden muddy bank, and the the prince just immediately stopped, and they never saw this this again. They had no idea where it went at all, and they were. This was one of multiple really spooky things that happened this family which basically ended up that they were going to that they did they sold the ranch to Robert Bigelow because they were like get me the fuck out of here so when they came back after trying to and failing to track this wolf they saw the lump of flesh okay because I'm sure at this point they were probably like was that even real like you know what the fuck happened and they saw the piece of flesh and they said they looked at the flesh and it already seemed to be decaying it looked like old rotted flesh again these are hunters they know these kind of things they know how long something has been dead they're farmers as well you know they would be around decay and death quite a lot i would imagine and they just said it made absolutely no sense so like Really weird stuff, a lot of really weird stuff has happened on Skinwalker Ranch and you can go watch the documentary if you want. But on my little rabbit hole I googled, you know, trying to, I was actually trying to find the original story of this or if there was any more. And I came across an article from the BBC News from the 25th of May 2018 and it says wolf-like creature shot near Montana Ranch puzzles experts. Now obviously this is not the same ranch but very interesting again, okay. And there's pictures. And I first, I was like, is this fucking fake? Like, I'll, I'll link this in the show notes again. Um, so it says US wildlife experts are baffled by a wolf-like animal that was killed by a Montana farmer. And they said it has like abnormally uh sized paws, really weird snout shape. Like basically it looks like no other animal they've ever seen. And they said that the closest thing that it could look like is what they call a dire wolf. Now the dire wolf has been extinct forever uh, since forever, basically. Now, they say others think it could be a koi wolf, which is a coyote wolf hybrid, or a wolf dog breed. And it, there is it's safe to say there are a lot of there is a lot of um I mean, it's not a breed, but there are dogs out there, especially wild dogs, which aren't a breed that we would know them as. However, in America, you know, if the, if the land is, you know, quite heavily farmed. There's quite a lot of ecological studies there. They, they pretty much know all the animals that are there. I'd say most of them are getting extinct, if anything. And there are wolves in Montana. But what did interest me was this theory of it being a dire wolf. And, you know, to quote here, one of the on-site scientists said, "Um, it's a prehistorical animal like mastodons and saber-toothed tigers, so it doesn't exist." Now, on my looking into Skinwalker Ranch and in this documentary, someone else on the Skinwalker Ranch once saw a, a wolf, and they they came back and they told the the farmer, I believe it might have been his daughter. Or someone who lived there came back and kind of said, like, I saw this fucking animal here. Um, and they were shown images of different kinds of wolves that are known in the area. And the only one they pointed out was a picture of a dire wolf, which, again, is extinct and is, quote unquote, prehistoric. So that's really fucking interesting. So this story of the skin of Skinwalker Ranch got me then looking into skinwalkers. Like, what is that? And this is what we're going to go on. And keep in mind this story of this wolf that Terry and his son saw when I go down this little rabbit hole with you. So what is a skinwalker? We mentioned earlier that the U tribe would reference this ranch as in the path of the skinwalker. And a skinwalker in Native American mythology, they, it's a quite a touchy subject. It's one of those things that they don't like to acknowledge. Think of it like Slenderman. Ooh, I even get creeped out when I say Slenderman. Because it's one of those things that the more you think of it and the more you acknowledge it in their culture, the more likely it is that you're going to come across one. However, it is an evil entity. It is typically an evil presence that steals lives, souls, um, and it's a shapeshifter, a very nefarious being. It is also noted in this documentary that the Ute tribe do, does warn their people against visiting near the ranch. So... They do not, you know, encourage people to do so. So the mythology around skinwalkers goes across pretty much all Native American cultures from what I could see or any of the any of the predominant ones that are still obviously alive this day and age so particularly in the Navajo culture a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch so this is where we have kind of the crossover with witchery and magic Um, and it has the ability to turn into possess or disguise themselves as an animal this kind of witch is called an Forgive me if I butchered that but, butchered this pronunciation yi Naldushi dushi by the navajo and it translates to basically with it he goes on all fours um so this person is also said to like during the day they exist around you like you don't know that they are a skinwalker. It's not like a healer or a, a sacred priest in their culture that like everyone knows that that is their function within the in the in the tribe. This person walks amongst you during the day but by night is a shapeshifter. It is one of like several types of Navajo witches uh, that's considered To be dangerous. But this is considered to be one of the most volatile. And dangerous of them all. Hence a lot of tribes being very. They're they're scared to to acknowledge it. Apparently even asking them. They don't really want to fucking talk about it. So the Navajo as I said. This is where I could find the most amount. About skinwalkers. Um, But from what I could see. A lot of them do. You know like all mythology. And we're going to get into this in a second. There's always parallels across cultures, tribes, countries, everything else. So the Navajo kind of they believe in this kind of yin and yang aspect that you can harness good energy to do good things and evil. They are present at the same time. So that like, you know, although there is good energy and good witchery, magic, um evil will also exist, okay? So that's something that always interests me when i when you talk about mythology and that we they mythology often does not think that good will counteract evil whereas if you look at a lot of abrahamic religions we kind of believe that even though we have heaven and hell and we are always trying to exist in like you know god is light and we're trying to exist in this kind of um way of living that like if we do enough good we can counteract evil but something that always you know appealed to me more when you talk about mythology and more ancient kind of belief systems or stories is that the you know acknowledging that good and even evil both exist so in the navajo culture in a lot of native american cultures there are witches there are healers um and you'll see this across a lot of ancient cultures but that there are good and that there are evil, and it is important to acknowledge the evil so that you can see the good. Um, So sometimes these witches evolved from living their lives as respective healers or spiritual guides. So they started off as guides, and they started off as good, okay? However, they later chose to use their powers for evil. They can either be male or female. However, interestingly, and when you start to think of something like werewolves, skinwalkers are typically male, they tend to shapeshift and they tend to turn into their animal form at nighttime and i know a lot of your uh, inner childhood brains are dinging there thinking of yes The werewolf, okay? So when I looked into the idea of the werewolf, the werewolf seemed to be more Germanic. Northwestern area of uh, Europe, it was rooted in a lot of, again, with witches, which is interesting when I started to look at this from a Native American perspective. They also had the crossover witches. Apparently, the werewolves was also part of this whole witch hunt kind of um, approach that we had in Europe, and then obviously that transferred over into America. However, I couldn't really find in much of my lo- uh, looking into it whether—and I don't think this is true—but whether the Germanic tale of the werewolf was brought over to America and then that did that influence Native American tribes. However, from everything I can see, this the, the, the theory of skinwalkers exists pre pre exists. Colonizers in America. So, how does one become a skinwalker? This is not a curse that's put on to anyone. As I said, it is actually a decision that a healer will make to go down this kind of black magic route that that we would know it as, and they have to be initiated by some sort of like secret society of other skinwalkers. And it usually requires the most evil of all deeds, and that is killing a close family member, most often a sibling. So, this would be told to children in Navajo and Native American cultures when they are telling these stories of skinwalkers it is always told that in order to become one you have to do the most evil thing which is either killing someone in your family if not your direct sibling which is obviously you know 100% one of the most evil things anyone could ever do. Most often skinwalkers are seen in various forms ranging from like coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, bears so kind of canine a lot of the time however they can take the shape of any animal oftentimes a skinwalker will kill an animal and then they can take its form that is kind of how it goes about so in folklore and in their mythology they would say that how to see a skinwalker and how to differentiate that from an actual animal is that they have human eyes so I immediately started thinking of this dog I saw on TikTok that literally had human eyes and if you've ever seen that in an animal it is really spooky it's like when they have a lot of white in their eye or something but that's something that they can't shift Apparently, it is their eyes. Their powers include mind control and mind reading, Um, and they often do a lot of things that would be almost considered poltergeisty. And this is something that has been noted on Skinwalker Ranch as well, especially in the second middle homestead. Um, Apparently, there's a lot of knocking on windows, banging on walls. They're menaces. They kind of torture you almost. They'll be. They've often been seen like peering through windows. Imagine fucking seeing a big wolf peering through your window. I would. Oh my god, freak the fuck out. They oftentimes also jump immediately out in front of vehicles and then disappear instantly. And um, it's almost like to cause a crash or to get you out of your car. They have supernatural powers as well. Apparently, they are known to be uncanny. They say that they can run faster than cars. They can jump up high cliffs. You'll often see them scaling like, you know, huge like ravines or huge. If I'm thinking even in Utah, I'm thinking like valleys and canyons. Really fast, really agile, almost feline like in their agility. And they're impossible, this is from um, a website that I found here, they say they're impossible to, ca- uh, to catch and leave tracks larger than, larger than those of any animal and are often known to disappear mid-track. Now think back to that, that tale from Terry, he tried to hunt down, they could not track them, huge tracks but that disappeared immediately. Sometimes when they have been seen they've been described as not quite human and not fully animal. They can also be seen as naked, but some report to seeing, like, you know, tattered shirts on a wolf. Really interesting. That then started getting me thinking about senators and minotaurs. And then I started to think about shape-shifting in other areas of mythology. Now, I mentioned before that I do do have a degree in classics, albeit I am no... uh, Classical historian, I will have to say it's a, it's an interest of mine. And I'm getting back into it now because of this podcast, which I'm loving. um However, it's one of those things I do wish I I paid a little bit more attention in college. But you know, I was onto more interesting things as 20 year old Jenny felt. Anyway, I remember in my first year in college, we did we had a class on mythology for the year. My still today, one of my favorite things that we uh, studied. So shape shifting is huge again in Greek mythology so in this uh mythology class that we did module should i say we concentrated for the first term on parallels in multiple mythologies on like the foundation of earth okay so how but this is back you know these are stories told centuries and centuries ago thousands of years ago and we we learned about how the greeks thought the world to have started talked about how aboriginals and Japanese mythology all said the world had been started and there were parallels in each and every story. Now I can go into them on a different episode. However, that I remembered being like, whoa, that really stuck at me. We're talking like 12 years ago, <laughs> 13 years ago, fuck, um, that I learned this. And it's really stuck at me. I, I remember being like, you know, I remember our lecturer saying to us, you know, these are cultures that never would have coexisted and came from different times. They never would have met. We're talking Australia, Japan and Greece in like, however the fuck long ago. And there was all very specific, although their mythology was very, very different the Japanese and the Aboriginal, from what I remember, more so focused on like more like nature. And then obviously the Greek, we had gods, but they all had really weird parallels. That's what sparked this interest in me in shape-shifting in Greek mythology. So shape-shifting in Greek mythology is really, really common, not just in the gods, but also in mortals now it will be inflicted on mortals by gods and we'll get into that in a second so one really interesting and one of my favorite uh, stories of shape-shifting and it, it goes from the birth of Athena so Zeus if you know anything about ancient Greek mythology Zeus is like the biggest fucking dickhead like he is if you want to think of like the founder of fuck that is Zeus he is just he's like a playboy he's like oh my god, he's a dirtbag. He is raping left, right and centre. I'm sorry, there I said it. He's horrendous. like an awful character. And, you know, I don't mean to say that in jest because it's so horrific, but like it really happens so often in Greek mythology. It's fucking, ugh, actually gives me the heebie-jeebies. But again, it is a story and it was also very off the time. So the first wife of Zeus is the titan Metis. And Zeus it was always told to Zeus that he would marry someone and that woman would give birth to a child that would be even more powerful than Zeus and this freaked Zeus out because Zeus killed his own dad okay this is a long an ongoing theme within Greek mythology that you kill your dad okay and Zeus was freaked because Zeus wants to be king daddy okay and he was so, you know, pop off. But like he wants to be the main guy, the main star of the show. So he's married to Midas and like Midas is a shapeshifter. Okay. She can change her appearance into anything. This is one of her um this is one of her special Powers, okay, because these are titans. In one story, she was kind of bragging to Zeus, apparently, that she could like shape shift so much. She was like, I can be this and I can be that. And Zeus is getting, you know, also Zeus has in the back of his head, he's like, fuck, I really don't want to get her pregnant because her kid is going to be really powerful and he's going to come out and he's going to kill me. So Zeus is a trickster as well. And Zeus tricks Metis into changing herself into a fly. And then Zeus swallows the fly. He's like, haha, gotcha. Now, little did he know, Mita's was already up the duff. She was already pregnant. And she actually stayed alive in his head. Yes, this is how Greek mythology goes. And built armor for her daughter while she was in his head. Because she was like, I know I'm having a daughter and I want them to be protected because Zeus is going to try kill this baby because he thinks that this kid is going to come and kill him. So apparently the banging of her metalwork... <laughs> I'm, you know, retelling the story, guys. But well, the banging of the metal work that meat as the fly was doing inside Zeus's head gave Zeus like this, like insane headache. Like he was, like just having the worst migraines of his goddamn life. He was out here trying to like trick mortals into having sex with them left, right, and center, and he was having these really bad headaches that were just getting in the way. So he basically um, convinces Hephaestus to clove his head with an axe, split his head open, and who is born from his head but Athena. Um, Fully grown woman in armour. And then obviously she became, you know, she is powerful because she is Athens. So that's a really interesting way if we look at shape-shifting, that it can be used to trick, it can be used to hide, and it can be used as a way that the gods can almost battle each other very very strange. So, um in particular Zeus again, <laughs> he repeatedly transformed himself. Um one really famous one would be Nemesis. So she is she became the goddess of retribution and she tr- transformed herself into a goose to escape zeus's advances. That's a nice way of putting he was, you know, trying to rape her. Um however, she turned herself into a goose and Zeus said, "Ha ha ha, I'm going to turn myself into a swan." and get my way with you as a bird she then laid an egg and that egg became helen of troy so a lot of the times we're seeing these like very powerful female figures also coming as a result of this shape-shifting which i always find interesting do i like to see these parallels kind of being played out um so obviously as i said earlier in greek mythology It can be used as a punishment and a really famous example of that would be Medusa. Medusa obviously broke her vow of celibacy and by having sex with Poseidon and she was turned into a snake-headed woman and anyone who looked at her turned to stone. Going back toward then, you know, on my rabbit hole, I then came across a story that I remembered and it has a really interesting overlap with werewolves. This is when Zeus transformed King Lycan and his children into wolves. And guess what the term for well werewolves is? Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy is the term used for folklore of werewolves basically and this was when i was like oh my god i fucking knew i knew that there was <laughs> i mean like it's not like i i cracked the code here but it was like when i really remembered i was like oh my god i remember this i remember this story so it was that zeus transformed uh, this king and his children into wolves and it was a punishment, again, just kind of like Medusa. And there's a few different variants of this myth. Um, And it's either that he, he punished him for killing Zeus's children or serving him the flesh of Lycaon's own murdered son. Again, all myths have different variables depending on where they originated from. But I thought that was so interesting. When you look, I, that's one thing I just love about mythology. I love to look at parallels in like folklore in fairy tales and then bring it back to like i love looking back at greek mythology for it as i said i love that uh, greek gods and goddesses and deities often were like tricksters they were jealous they were hateful they were conniving against each other and you know when even when you look at the 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 myths of shapeshifters or skinwalkers these are always used as ways to trick people now in terms of the skinwalker in native american culture it's quite different in that they become these dark entities however it's still a dark kind of you know it's still that parallel is there that you know whether you are inflicting shapeshifting on someone or you're tricking someone to shapeshift or you're shapeshifting yourself it's often not for doing something very heroic shall we say, if we're going to go down the the mythology route, you are often doing this to do something anti-heroic, trickery. And, you know, if you really think of it, wearing a cloak or wearing a mask, if you're wearing a mask of an, of someone else, it's so that you are preying on someone naive, preying on someone good to do your evil or to do something that is only self-serving. I find that really interesting. Um, so I'm going to leave it there for today hopefully you enjoyed this talk a little bit lighter um do go watch that documentary if the skinwalker ranch story kind of piqued your interest really really interesting i'd like to maybe talk about a bit about that tomorrow if you watch it let me know hope you liked a bit of the mythology i've got more episodes based on mythology planned and yeah i'll see you on thursday and if not i'll see you all next week back on the pod bye